Please turn now in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. And this morning, I want to read from verse 7 down through 13. Isaiah 55, verses 7 through 13. Let us stand together and hear God's Word together. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father God, this day we pray that your word would descend, would accomplish that for which it was sent, and it would prosper in the thing whereto you send it. Father, we pray that your spirit would attend this word and that this would have more of an impact upon us than it has in the past and that it would bring forth much fruit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The theme of the message this morning comes from Oklahoma. It's a screenplay or a... A stage play. And the way that the theme song in Oklahoma goes is, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going God's way. That's the way the Swansons sing that. We, we don't like the humanist rendition of it, and so we sing it in a biblical way. Everything's going God's way. And there is this clash between my way and God's way that has played out, well, since the fall of man in the garden. And we see this contrast in this passage between my way or the wicked way and God's way. And I want to draw this out for you this morning as we get into this passage. We'll begin with verse 7. There are two problems with the wicked. We, we left off here last week, but we'll get back to it this morning. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Two problems, his way and his thoughts. The, the wicked man, the natural man, thinks a certain way. It's the wrong way. It's his way. It's his thoughts. And then he goes his way. First, he has his thoughts, and then he takes his way according to the way that he thinks. This, of course, is the, the reverse in how it happens in conversion and how it happens in the Christian life. We begin to set aside our ways, our thoughts. We begin to think God's thoughts, and then we walk in God's thoughts and God's ways. So that's what constitutes uh, a biblical counseling session, or that's what constitutes conversion, is that we put aside our own thoughts, turn away from our thoughts, and turn towards God's thoughts, start thinking God's thoughts and walking God's ways. And that's the conversion that is described here in verse 7. Now, the wicked thoughts, the wrong thoughts, the my thoughts, the my ways, is summed up in the, in the, in the word autonomy. Autonomy. Autonomy literally is translated to be a law unto oneself. Opposing God's ways, God's laws and God's thoughts, and thinking in terms of our own thoughts, our own perspectives. Another way to look at autonomy is rebellion. Now, uh, we are gaining more experience with two-year-olds as grandparents. 
and I guess it's been a little while because it's kind of a shock to the system. Basically, two-year-olds will say this, I want things to go my way, and I am going to go my way. We say to the two-year-old, now we're going to do this. We're going over here. And the two-year-old says, no, we aren't. I am going over there. And I'm not going over here. I'm going over there. This is the way two-year-olds operate. And we've noticed that as you grow older, you're able to maybe act like you're conforming while you're not conforming. But the neat thing about two-year-olds, they're very honest about their autonomy. I don't know if that's a neat thing, but at least we can, you know, identify that's autonomy. We're going this way now. No, we're not. I'm going this way. That, my friends, is autonomy. And that's the human heart that so beautifully expresses what uh, Oklahoma is trying to express and what Adam did in the garden. So it's very clear, I think, to parents. Parents can tell this autonomy so easily because of the resistance of the human heart found among children. Now, children in the notes, we find Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And that is from two chapters back, but it pretty much describes the natural man. It's the way we are by nature. All little children, whether two-year-olds or four-year-olds, or maybe you're a ten-year-old, by nature, all of us want to go our own way. Now, I could not put it better than Frank Sinatra. And perhaps these are some of the most frightening words ever expressed in history, at least in modern history. And, and they're put in the form of what I would call Nephilim language. Now, what is the Nephilim? The Nephilim are giants in the land who have stood up strongly against God. And in the face of death itself, at the brink of hell itself, these men are still shaking their fist in the face of God. Now, this kind of autonomy and rebellion is really a phenomenal kind of thing, so well expressed in popular culture, uh, the atheistic culture, you know, the, the uh, apostate culture of the last 50 years. And here's the way Frank puts it. Now the end is near. So we're standing on the very brink of death and hell. Now, again, the fist is in the air. The fist is in the face of God. And this is what Frank says. Again, whether it's a two-year-old or Frank Sinatra, friends, this is the problem. Listen the way Frank puts it. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Now listen to this. For what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he is not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. That is the heart of natural man. That's apostate man. That is the man tipping into the flames of hellfire forever and ever. That's what it looks like. There is such self-consciousness in these words, such self-consistency about a wicked man, the very essence of human pride, shaking a fist in the face of Almighty God, as it were, 30 seconds before Judgment Day. But friends, this is a picture of all of us by nature. It's the very essence of, of wickedness and rebellion against God. Why did you lose your temper and say that mean thing to your child yesterday? Why did you visit the wrong website? Because you were in rebellion against God. The sooner we come to grips with that issue, the better. The sooner we realize we're doing this against God. We're doing the face of God. We're rebelling against God. 
the better it is, brothers and sisters. By nature, we have our own plans. We have our own objectives. We have our own idea what good is, the way things ought to go. We violate God's laws in order to have our own way. We get mad when things don't go our way. We might even blame God for it because He's not on board with our program. So we have two problems, our own thoughts and our own ways. So brothers and sisters, we're called to repentance. May the wicked man turn from his own thoughts, his wicked thoughts, his wicked ways, and turn back to God. That is, we we turn away, we, we say... We don't want our own thoughts anymore. We throw it all overboard. I don't trust me. I don't trust my own thoughts anymore. I don't want to go my own way anymore. That's what it is to forsake your own thoughts and your own ways. I I can't set my own priorities and values for life anymore. I can't do it. I give up on this. I'm not the person to do this. I I can't listen to myself anymore. It's a heart submission to God. It's what the Apostle Paul did on his own way, bent to destroying Christ's people, you know, setting a, 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 the, 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 the war against Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And, and there he is fighting Jesus, persecuting Jesus. And in a moment, as Jesus addressed him, he said, what will you have me to do, Lord? Abandoning his own way, abandoning his agenda in Damascus, Saying, no, I'm not going that way anymore. Jesus, tell me what you want me to do today. That's repentance. That's it. 180 degree change in mind. Nathan the prophet coming to you and saying, you are the man. And you say, yes, I am the man. I'm it. I am the problem in this relationship. I am the problem in my family. I'm the problem. I am the problem. I can't see anybody else. All I can see is myself. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, is what David says in Psalm 51. I interviewed the the recent president of ACBC, the counseling organization, the biblical counseling organization, a couple days ago, and I asked him, what's the secret to making progress in counseling? He was the president of biblical counseling in America. I asked him, what's the secret to making progress in counseling? And the president of this ACBC organization says, humility. That's it. It's just real humility, not fake humility. Just, just an openness and a reception and a realization that I am the problem here. There's a night and day difference between that which is humble and repentant and that which is stiff-necked and proud and arguing and judgmental and, and blame-shifting and all the rest. The latter is, is just a bummer. It's no fun to counsel at all. Humility is the key. Humility is the key to real repentance, real conversion. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Repentance is the precursor to remission. God does not forgive a non-repentant heart and mind. Now granted, repentance is a gift of God. We know that. But repentance comes first, then forgiveness, then remission. Now, repentance is not a works either. We correct this thinking as much as we possibly can because the cults confound the whole thing. They mess it all up. But repentance is a change of mind. It's an attitude of humility. It's a brokenness before God. It's Judah saying that prostitute is a better person than me. She's better than me. Tamar, the prostitute, she's better than me. That's one of the most glorious moments in all of Scripture. I just love Judah for that. She's, she's a better woman than me. That's humility. That, that's the point at which God just receives. So when the prodigal comes home and says, I'm just not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to be your son. But the father just abundantly forgives and, and receives his son because there he comes in humility to him. That's the first precursor to it. It's the publican on his face before God could not lift up his eyes to heaven. Couldn't even look up to heaven 
He, he, he couldn't look anywhere else. The Pharisee was pointing to this way and that way. I'm, thank God I'm better than him or her or my wife or my husband or whatever it is. Just thank God I am not like them. Always thinking of the other person. But there the publican couldn't think of anybody else, couldn't look at anybody else, couldn't even look up to heaven, but just say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And that man goes home justified. Immediate acceptance. Overwhelming acceptance. Abundant pardon. There's no merit here at all. There's simply a man falling on his face saying, I am the man. I'm the problem. Oh, God have mercy on me. That's it. That's it. And God receives him. Oh, so beautiful. God will abundantly pardon. All right, that's last week. Now let's look at the basis for the call, verses 8 and 9. Why do we we forsake our thoughts? Well, this is a, a reason Obviously other reasons, but here's a four. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, or your ways, my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Oh, God's thoughts are so very different from our thoughts. God's ways are very different from our ways. Imagine an obedient two-year-old. Wow. I'm I'm just for a moment. I, I know it's very hypothetical, but... Well, from time to time, you get a a Jesus or John the Baptist. You know, spirit is filling the John the Baptist from his mother's womb. And, you know, there there are instances like that. I believe there are. But uh, just for a moment, I mean, imagine a trusting two-year-old. Son, we're going over here now. Absolutely, Dad, let's go. Well, they don't use the word absolutely. They go, okay, okay, I'm coming, I'm coming. But imagine a two-year-old that's trusting God. Imagine yourself being somebody who's trusting God, like a two-year-old, you know, obedient, following God's ways like a two-year-old, trusting that God knows best, content with God's ways, content with God's laws, content with God's works, and yet still incapable of comprehending God's ways. I like my brother's illustration. It keeps coming back to me again and again. It's five-year-old daughter in the back seat on the way to church, concerned that dad is taking a detour through town, and that's not apropos, not right. She says, that's not the way to church, dad. You made the wrong turn. She doesn't understand. There's construction going on, and and dad made the right turn because he's got reasons for why he did what he did. And so, but she's concerned, like, dad, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. What a great illustration. How can we possibly understand the inner working of God's purposes and plans? We're two-year-olds. What are we going to do, instruct God? Here, God, I'm really smart. Or better yet, all my friends on Facebook are really smart. Har, har, har. Or the university professors, oh, they're so very smart. They've got the whole universe figured out. Hardy, har, har. That's ridiculous. And we all know that's ridiculous. They know it's ridiculous. And yet man will follow man's thinking in terms of ethics and science and all the rest. It's, it's foolishness, utter foolishness. Who are we to instruct God? Who is, who is the child in the back seat? Uh, Dad, you're taking the wrong, wrong way. You know, again, you know, who's the two-year-old? Like, excuse me very much. Uh, so let's see. You got a Google map thing working in the back seat. You know, it just, it, doesn't it seem ridiculous that, that we would counsel God? Hey, hey, hey God, um, uh, you're doing this wrong. It just, doesn't that sound foolish? They say amen if that's foolish. That's really foolish. Extremely foolish. That's outrageously foolish. And there's really the theme of Job, where Job is trying to figure God out. Basically, God says, stop. Stop, Job. Stop, stop, stop. That's it. Stop. No more. That's what he says in the last four chapters. And Job put a hand to his mouth, and that was it. Okay? Because, you see, we, we aren't allowed to, to, to ask those questions, to receive the ultimate answers for these things. Now, what I want to do in the next few minutes is give you seven things that can sour a person's attitude towards God. Seven things that constitute the natural man and his way of thinking. Now, here, here they are. Let me go over them. 
God does not meet our expectations. Number two, God does not explain to us why he is doing what he's doing. Number three, God tells us things we cannot fully explain. Number four, God tells us the truth when we don't want to hear it. Number five, God tells us to do the things we do not want to do. Number six, God does not meet our standard of justice, and he does whatever he wants to do. And number seven, God brings his wrath and curse upon sin, and that sinful man finds supremely offensive. Okay, those are the seven things that irritate people about God's ways and God's thinking. Now, let me address these one by one. These are the things that sour man's views towards God, and they might even sour your view towards God from time to time, where the natural man has something of influence upon your way of thinking. But let's go through these one by one first. God does not meet our expectations. And we are devastated when things do not go our way. The way we thought they were supposed to go when we were raising our children. Or the way we thought they were supposed to go when we lost a spouse. Or whatever it might be. God does not meet our expectations. Now, of course, the assumption here is that God's supposed to meet our expectations. Now, why is it that God is supposed to meet our expectations? Well, because I'm God and He's not. Isn't that what it boils down to? The problem is we have no right to self-derived expectations. Remember Baruch, who's down in the mouth. Ministry's not going well. And God says, now, wait a minute, Baruch, wait a minute. I build up and I tear it down. You got a problem with that big guy? I build up this people, I tore it back down. You got a problem with that, Baruch? But take that up with me, Baruch. See, that's what he's asking. Baruch has all these expectations. And God didn't meet his expectations. He's so disappointed about it all. Well, the assumption that is that I'm sovereign, I'm the determinant of what is the right way, and that which will produce the best possible scenario. But here's the issue, guys. I don't, I'm still a two-year-old. Remember your two-year-old. You have all these expectations. I was supposed to get all this candy this morning. And I didn't get all the candy I wanted. What's the problem with a two-year-old? Doesn't have all the wisdom in the universe. Doesn't, doesn't have the power. Doesn't have the sovereignty. Doesn't have the ability to know what is good. I mean, guys, two-year-olds. Okay, just leave the house to two-year-olds for like four weeks. You know, all the sugar and the candy and the chocolate chips in the big container. We have, we have like 60 pounds of chocolate chips. I don't know why. But, but if we left the house, you know what would happen. We would come back in four weeks and there would be these dead two-year-olds all over the living room because they ate all the chocolate chips. Isn't that what would happen? So, brothers and sisters, we're two-year-olds. We don't have the standard for goodness. We wouldn't know what would be good and what would produce the most good. We just don't know this kind of stuff. It's way beyond us. We're not the essence of, of defining what is good, but God is. God is. It would be unloving for God to just give in, let us go our own way. He loves His children too much for that. Okay, that's number one. Number two, Keep going. God does not explain to us why he is doing what he's doing. Now, would you expect that you should explain to your two-year-old every financial decision you've made, Dad? You're going to sit your two-year-old down going, okay, here is why we've made the decision to budget our money this way. You think your two-year-old's going to go, oh, thanks, Dad, I needed to know that. No, you're not going to need to share that with your two-year-old. You don't have to give it all to him. But look at verse 9. What does it say? As far as the heavens is above the earth, so far is God's thoughts above our thoughts, God's ways above our ways. Okay, roughly, how far is that? It's, it's, kids, it's way beyond the ceiling. The galaxies go on and on. They, they haven't found the end of the galaxies yet. 
We have great micro telescopes to identify these things, but we, we can't find them. That is God's ways, God's thoughts. Forget about it. You're not going to ever achieve the, the mental capacity to understand what God is doing. There's just no way, no way, no way, guys, that you're ever going to understand it. Now, what about the lyrics farther along? Dolly Parton, Johnny Cash. I, I, I understand but I want to critique them for just a moment. You all heard the gospel song, Farther Along, Farther Along? We'll know all about it. Farther Along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. Uh-uh, I don't think so. You're not going to understand it all by and by. That's just not true. Now, if you have a 20-year perspective on you know, your life, and we go 20 years beyond the trial that you're going through right now, you're going to look back and see something. There's no question. You're going to know for certain that everything worked out for good. You, you will know that for certain. You will understand more by and by, but you're not going to understand all of it by and by. And at some point, we need to concede that this is good. God's glory will be maximized and the best possible outcome is inevitable because that's the way our Father is going to bring it out. But we're just not going to know that. Now, one more consideration about this. If life worked out the way I planned it, okay, let's just say it did. I had planned it out for our church. I had planned it all out for my family. I had planned it all out Every detail of our lives, guys, just you left it up to me to sovereignly determine the future of your life, this church, and my family. Some of you are going, that's really scary. And you're right, that is really scary. Right? The pr- and here's why. The premise, here's why. Now listen carefully. This is why you should not be planning out your life. Now, as I said, planning out your life as a self-oriented thing. Now, granted, God gives us wisdom, and then we make our plans according to His wisdom. But we have to tweak our plans according to the increased levels of wisdom that He gives to us. Okay? But if it's just me autonomously working off of my plan for my life and for our lives, the problem is this, the premises that I work off of, were not what I thought they were. We, we draw our trajectories from the basis, the premises, what we think is real and true in the present. But we're, we're wrong with the premise. So of course, we're going to be wrong with the modus operandi and the conclusions that we draw and the plans that we work out for the future of our lives. Number three, third problem with our thoughts when it comes to complaining about God, is that uh, God tells us the things we cannot fully explain. And this is the reason for all the cults in the world. This is the reason for the religions in the world. But as Christians, we deal with the impossibilities with incomprehensibilities. The philosophers have conceded there is no possible way of accepting this reality of oneness and manyness without rejecting physical reality and all distinctions altogether on one side or accepting a chaotic universe on the other side. This is why Eastern religions, I've been studying Eastern religions now for a month, Eastern religions are some of the most messed up ways of thinking you could ever imagine. On the one hand, they err towards polytheism. On the other hand, they they err towards obliterating all physical reality and trying to blend everything into monism or the oneness of all things. So they're so messed up. It's like putting your mind in a blender and turning it on high. There's just no way they can explain reality. There's no way, no way, no way they can explain the inner workings of the one and the many. The Greeks understood this and they gave up. Some of these world religions haven't given up yet. They're just fooling themselves. Philosophers have also conceded there's no possible way of retaining human responsibility in a determinate or indeterminate universe, but we have resolved these issues 
by the Trinitarian God, the ultimacy of the oneness and the manyness, as well as God sovereignly ordaining the free actions of men. We cannot explain how he does it. The enemy comes back to us and says, yeah. So it's impossible for every world religion, every philosopher, but you step out and say, but we're going to trust God on this, and he said, this is the way it works, but I'm not going to tell you the whole story. And you're sufficient with that. We say yes, because we want to humble ourselves as two-year-olds and receive the limited knowledge that our Father is going to give us and trust him with it. Now, so on the one hand, the world cannot explain the impossibilities. We can, and we do it as little two-year-olds, humbling ourselves and acknowledging that we explain the impossibilities with incomprehensibilities. His thoughts are far above our thoughts. His ways are far above our ways. The fourth thing that natural man cannot handle when it comes to God's thoughts and God's ways is that God tells us to do things we do not want to do or not to do things we want to do. And this, of course, is sin. This is the original sin. The reason for this is that there's a corruption of heart. There's a hatred of God. There's a proud and unsubmissive spirit. And it's true that men actually get excited and thrilled to do the things that God does not want them to do. You understand that? That's, that actually excites them. It excites them to go to the wrong websites. It excites them to disobey God. It's exciting to commit adultery. It's exciting to violate God's law and develop idols about materials and all the rest. That's exciting to them. And the reason it's so exciting is because they are rebels against God. That's why. Okay, fifthly, God also tells us the truth when we don't want to hear it. He tells us the truth about ourselves. That's why so many people walk away from the gospel preaching. They, they don't want to know about their need for Christ. Remember, I was just standing up in the Elizabeth one time reading from the, the Sermon on the Mount. And a, a, a man came up to me and he stomped on my feet. Thankfully, Neil was over there, and, you know, I was like, what are you doing? But he was upset with me for reading from the Sermon on the Mount. And Neil had a good conversation with him later. I'm thankful for that. But natural man doesn't like God's Word. He doesn't want to hear it. It, it condemns him. It convicts him. He doesn't, he doesn't want that. We want to think that we're pretty good people. But God says even your righteousness is as filthy rags. Worthless. Worthless. A natural man doesn't want, to, doesn't want to hear that. Okay, move on. Number six, God does not meet our standard of justice. And, and he does whatever he wants to do. He saves whoever he wants to save. When someone stands up and says that, they're like, that's not fair. I remember saying that in a speech class at my junior college. And I said, God is going to save anybody he wants to save. He only wants to save one person on earth, so be it. That's infinite grace. And the lady in front of me says, you mean I deserve God's wrath and curse? I said, yeah, you too. And uh, she didn't like that one little bit. But, but it's just, they don't they say it's fair. They say that's, that's not fair. They say, God, you can't do whatever you want to do. That's not fair. But, but who made us the standard of justice and fairness? Given that we're not God, and oh, by the way, we're also sinners. So you think that's going to be a little bit of an issue when it comes to arguing with God's standard of justice? You know, like, I'll, I'll take you on God on that. Come here, let's, let's debate justice. You're being unjust here. You're a sinner. You're not God. He is God. What, you're in the standard of justice? You're not. You can't debate that with God. That's foolishness. No, God is the standard of all that is just. He can do whatever he wants to do. And then the seventh thing that irritates people about God is that he brings his wrath and curse upon sin. Basically, basically, what are we saying here? What's, what's the clash of worldviews in all of this? What is it? Here it is. God is God. And we're not. Isn't that it? God will be God. And we're not. Well, why is God going to consign people to, to hell? 
Why does he bring his wrath and curse upon sin? Because God is being God. You want God not to be God? You can't. God will be God. He's ultimately holy, wise, good, powerful, sovereign. And we're not any of that. So, brothers and sisters, we repent of this. We turn away from our thoughts and our wicked ways. God does not meet our expectations. Of course not. Forget my expectations. We're playing God's game, not mine. God does not explain to us why He's doing what He's doing. He doesn't need to. I'm His kid. I fully trust Him now. God tells us things we cannot fully explain. Absolutely. I can handle that. I'm His kid. I'm only two years old. God tells us the truth. We don't want to hear it. Actually, I want to be corrected. I, I, I know I'm a seriously messed up individual. Just out of curiosity, how many of you believe you're a seriously messed up individual? That's been confirmed. Okay, with a lot of you. Yeah, so of course I'm going to have to be changed. I mean, my mind's going to have to change according to the will of God and the Word of God. Yeah, absolutely. Come on, bring it on. Change my mind. Bring about a whole different way of viewing things. God tells us to do things we don't want to do. I love Him now. I want to walk in His way, not my own anymore. The ultimately submissive spirit says, Not my will, but thine be done. That's, that's my spirit now. Though the pain be excruciating as it was for Jesus in the garden, though the way seem impossible, though the path God puts before you may be the path of agony and devastation, yet you still say, Not my will, but your will be done, God. That's the spirit of repentance. God does not meet our standard of justice. He does whatever He wants to do. He saves whoever He wants to save. Praise God. Praise God He's saving people. And God brings His wrath and curse upon sin that sinful man finds it supremely offensive. Of course, why would I ever want to compromise God's sublime holiness or justice in any way that would only undermine the work of Christ, the holy Lamb of God who was sacrificed Because of the holy demands of a holy God who requires a holy sacrifice for sins. And that all makes sense to me. I accept that. I receive it. Praise be to God for His holiness. Praise be to God for the holy sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. I wouldn't want to minimize any of that. Hallelujah. See, that's our response to these things, brothers and sisters, as we take on a repentant spirit towards these things. Turn away from the wicked man and his thoughts and his ways and turn back to receiving God's thoughts. Well, let's close it with this. Verses 10 through 13 of the passage. And this is the point. This is the point of the sermon. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going God's way. Everything's going God's way. The only way it should go. The way I want it to go. It it has to go God's way. Why? Because God's way is the better way. Children, there it is in your notes. God's way is the better way. We wanted things to go God's way because God's way is the best way of all. It's infinitely a better way, a better plan than our plan. It's fair to say that everybody wants things to get better. People do the things they do because they want to make things better for themselves and sometimes for others as well. I think we can concede that. People, people don't, you know, you walk up to somebody and say, so you want things to go worse for you. No, no, no. Nobody will say, oh yeah, that's my whole goal in life. Nobody says that. They want things to go better. That's why they do what they do. But as man attempts to make things better on his own terms, he just continues to make things worse. And so we find the impoverishment of man-centered ministries. We find the futility of the cults. In fact, even amongst aspects of evangelicalism, and I would say anywhere there's a man-centered, man-sovereign attempt in ministry to manipulate people up to the front of the, 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 the building to make a decision, every time there's emotional manipulation or a sense that man is in control, man makes the ultimate decisions, any kind of a Pelagian way of looking at things is, is, is a destructive form. It's a man-centered way of looking at things. 
And when, when the humanists control our institutions, our churches, etc., etc., the more they've destroyed them, and they're destroying marriage and family and sexuality and everything else because of their solutions. Believe me, you talk to the humanists out there. They're, they're very committed. They're dedicated to their religious goal of man worshiping himself and glorifying self-esteem and all the rest. That's, that's all a man worshiping religion that's been imposed upon us. And now look at the disaster that's in front of our world today. Not like things are better over 40, 50 years. They're by factors of 10 to 40 times worse than they were in the 1960s. Man let loose with a humanist way of thinking is utterly destructive to, to what is happening in our world today. And so we find impoverishment of the man-centered ministries. I want to give you a, an example, a material example, that I think will help you as we consider these last few verses. I've flown over the bush country of Africa and Mexico, and I contrast the bush country of Africa and Mexico to the fruitful fields of Iowa and Nebraska. You fly over thousands of miles. It, it blows my mind. I think it was out of Ethiopia down into Uganda. Or maybe it was down further into Malawi. But as you fly over this, it is mind-blowing for the thousands of miles you fly where there is nothing but nothingness. Bushland. Fruitless bushes, brambles, nothingness, no real fruit for hundreds and thousands of miles. In fact, you do the Google Earth over Texas and the Mexico border and you see nothing but green and then nothing but brown. What a contrast between worldviews. Unbelievable, it's phenomenal, the fruitlessness of these lands due to the fact the gospel has yet to reach these countries. This is what Hinduism, pagan religions, especially as it influences Catholicism, Islam, man-invented works-based religions produce fruitlessness as far as I can see. Thousands of square miles of fruitlessness, not to mention economic impoverishment. Africa would die overnight had it not been for Europe and America shipping hundreds of thousands of tons of food every month into these impoverished nations in which the gospel has still yet to penetrate. But I speak just in terms of physical terms here. They're trying, these false religions, believe me, even the pagan religions, they're trying to make humans more moral. You understand that? They are. Even the witch doctors. They want people to get along with each other. The Hindu religion's big on this. How many washings do you have to go through? Hundreds of washings. Every kind of washing you can imagine to somehow clean off the externals in order to have something of an internal effect, but it's just all in vain. It's horrible. Fruitlessness, barrenness, joylessness, lovelessness. Just more misery, not to mention economic impoverishment. Now, I, I, I want to give you context just for a moment before we hit verses 10 and 11. Back in chapter 54, verse 1 and then 6, this is the context to the sermon. This is where the prophet opens up. Listen. Sing, O barren, you who have not borne, Break forth in his singing and cry aloud. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says the Lord. Do you know how heartbreaking it is? You understand how infinitely heartbreaking it is for a woman to be abandoned by her husband. You understand it. This is the message that God is bringing to us to encourage us this day. He says, be encouraged. Be encouraged. I am doing something through you, in you, with you. This is the message to us as well. This is the message to a church. This is a message to a family, to individuals. Be encouraged. God understands your pain today. He understands it. 
And He's here to to bring about an amazing, fruitful family in your life. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth fruit and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. It comes through the word. It comes by God's word. The fruitfulness will flow into the valleys and create fruitful churches throughout this valley of Elizabeth, throughout Elbert County, through the access we have to the Word of God, what, what brings about this fruitfulness. God's Word comes out of His mouth. It's very important. It's not that His Word is on paper. A.W. Tozer, I think, said it right. He said, this is not words on paper. This is the present voice of God speaking. The present voice of God makes the written word all-powerful and all-effectual. What we need to do, I think we referred to this two weeks ago. What we need to do is see the word of God as God's spoken word to you right now. Not a word coming from your mouth as you read it out loud, or as from me, but, but God's word spoken to you. When God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, He is saying, let there be faith. When God says, Lazarus, come forth in the message on the page as you're reading it. He is saying, Kevin, come forth. He's, he's speaking to you. He's got your name. And, and his words are, are powerful as, as they come in the present, in an audible tone, in, in your head. God's word grabs you. God's word does something to you. God's word establishes galaxies by his word. And this word coming to us today, does a powerful thing to us. The word spoken literally raises us from the dead. That's what raises us from the dead. It's his word that does it. When God says, rise up and walk, he's saying, let the man receive the power to rise up and walk in newness of life now. The words of Christ speaks today in their spirit and they are life. They literally give life. They come out of this word and God breathed as much today as they were first given in the Togrefa. God's word here, secondly, comes softly. Like snow falling gently on the mountaintops. I'm always amazed at how nondescript the snowfall is. Just kind of rests so gently upon the mountainsides. And you get huge numbers of feet of this snow that eventually melts and the valleys within three to six months are bursting with fruitful grasses and edible blessings. My favorite parable is Mark 4.27 and my brother has stolen my thunder yet again this morning. But I love Mark 4.27. It's just a short little three-verse parable, my favorite, where the kingdom of God is like a farmer who sows his seed goes to bed, wakes up the next morning, he's got crops. He's got a luscious garden. And and then the next phrase is this, and he knows not how. Well, you say, no, wait a minute, I know know exactly how. Uh, The way it worked was you sowed the seed and it sprouted and it brought forth fruit. No, we know not how. That is, we cannot put a cause and effect relationship on the power of the Word working, on God working through the Word, speaking the Word to the human heart, 
reviving the heart and doing an amazing work of grace in that person's heart. One of the most astounding testimonies to the Fijian revival, and I think it's my favorite revival, it's a powerful thing that happened that day when so many were converted out of the worst form of cannibalism that the world has ever seen. We're cannibalizing a third to a half of the population. It was, it was a horrible, horrible condition. The worst ever. The demonic horde had such hold upon that people. Seven years, that Methodist missionary worked there, and then one day after an old man prayed, a rushing wind came through, and it transformed the entire island chain of Fiji. Phenomenal. And at the end, the Methodist missionary said, what was astounding to me is typically in ministry or other aspects of life, we assign a cause and effect relationship, and I cannot do that in this situation. Why? Because it's God's work that he's doing in those people. The chills go up and down my back as I think of how God transformed that island chain overnight, overnight. God's word and fruitfulness comes like snow on the mountains, melting drop by drop, forming little streamlets that work its way into the creeks and then on into the rushing rivers and then on into the water layers and then eventually creating amazing amounts of fruit all the way across the Kansas Plains. It's an inconspicuous and unassuming work of God, like the kingdom of God, but this quiet growth appears everywhere around the world. So brothers and sisters, that's it. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. God's power comes through the word, the spoken word, his spoken word, by the Holy Spirit's work. And the effects are phenomenal. You shall go out with joy, be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The effects are real fruitfulness, righteousness, joy, and peace. And, and these fruits will serve well to give God the glory, to give God a certain glorious reputation, that is a name. See this name. It will be to the Lord for a name, an everlasting honor of having brought the most beautiful redemption in all of the history of the universe. And this will be the stuff of which praise is made. Songs of worship are composed, Danny Craig, and lifted up for all eternity, and his praise shall never diminish, but always be ever increasing as we come to know what He has done for us. A hundred hallelujahs this morning. A hundred hallelujahs. It will be for Him as a name. And it will be for Him as glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, this day we proclaim this message, but God, it is Your Word. It's, it's Your voice. It's Your Holy Spirit that does this amazing work. May the snow fall upon the mountaintops. God, may it run into the creeks, into the rivers, and spread throughout the state of Colorado. Oh God, that we would see the fruitfulness. Oh God, that we would not rely upon human righteousness, human religions, man-centered approaches, but that this would be the work of Almighty God. This would be your work, our covenant-keeping God, that you bring about in your churches across the state of Colorado. And here in Elbert County especially, we pray today, Oh, God, bring forth a mighty harvest. We, we will spread the seed, but we're going to go to bed. And then when we wake up in the morning, we're going to walk out and see uh, we've got green beans. We've got watermelons three feet long. We've got amazing crops because you did it, and we know not how. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Praise be to God. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I'd like to introduce the Lord's table from John 10 and verse 10 today. Jesus is the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise. He is the fulfillment. What does it look like? It's Jesus coming in. It's Jesus forgiving our sins. It's Jesus giving us His life and then responding in this life. He says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. 
And he does that all over the place. Africa, Asia, America. He's killing, he's stealing, he's destroying, he's doing it in our county. He's been killing in our county. But a murder and a suicide in our county this week. Yes, we know what the enemy does, but Jesus has come to make, give us life and to give it more abundantly. So brothers and sisters, let's celebrate the life that Jesus gives us today at the table. Now, there's nothing better than a dead man coming alive. Y'all know what it is to be dead. We all do by nature. We know what it is to be dead and then to become alive. Dead people don't appreciate the finer things of life. Put a little wine and chocolate and cheese and, you know, the, the best of the best in front of a dead guy. What does he say? What does he say to that? He doesn't say anything, right? can't talk. can't eat, can't talk. So dead people cannot appreciate the finer things in life. They can't appreciate Jesus. They can't appreciate His Word, His life, love, any of these things. But the Holy Spirit, the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, being here, enlivening, opening our eyes to see the truth. And you know, it's an exciting thing in the church or in your devotions when that happens, Right? It's neat to come alive because now we appreciate the finer things in life. To be alive. Alive to love God, to love others. Alive to recognize what is beautiful. See, dead people can't do that kind of thing, children. Be alive to God and dead to sin. Just developing this callousness to, to sin. For once sin was pulling on you, it doesn't really pull on you much anymore. You're dead to all that. Alive to God. See, that's what it is to be made alive, to become a Christian. That's what it it is. There's an aliveness to us. We walk every day in newness of life. Every day is a brighter and better day. We're alive to hope and to joy. Dead people don't have hope. They don't have joy. Alive to bear fruit, Romans 6.22, now being made free from sin and having become servants to God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Galatians 5.22, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we are alive in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And we begin to see these things honestly. We we see we are joyful in trial. We, we honestly see we're loving people where we weren't before. We were selfish and bitter and unforgiving before. And now it's different. It's changed. And we're seeing that fruit and, and we're alive. This is what Jesus came to bring. These are the verdant valleys that, that is spoken of Isaiah 55. And so at this table, brothers and sisters, check your pulse this morning. Check your spiritual pulse. You know, how, how alive am I? You know, how loving am I? Am I spiritually comatose? Am I in a coma of some sort? Am I spiritually anemic? Check your pulse for a moment. How am I spiritually? Am I alive? Am I here to celebrate the the aliveness and and the life that Jesus has come to bring to me? Where Jesus comes, there will be fruitful gardens, fields of green as far as I can see, in your life and my life the life of the church. But if you don't have this life, cry out to Him for it. Perhaps if you don't live the life more abundantly. Jesus, I've come to give life and to give it more abundantly. Maybe more abundant life. You know, you think, well, I'm a little crusty in the way that I deal with my wife. Not a lot of fruit of the Spirit going on. You know, well, cry out to Jesus to give you life, bro. You need life. You need to be alive, dead to sin, alive to God, alive to love, for God, for others. You know, aliveness. That's what we need. Amen, brothers? Yeah, we need to be alive to God. And this is what Jesus tells us in John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. See, that's, that's where we get our life, from the blood and from the flesh of Jesus. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So let us, in faith, reach out to Jesus to receive his life.
And that's what this is. This is an opportunity simply in faith to reach out to Jesus to receive not just the cup and the bread, but His body, His blood, His life, His spiritual life to surge through you. So that's, that's what we're receiving today. And let's just receive that by faith. Okay? Amen. Our Father God, oh, we need the life of Jesus. We need it more abundantly. We thank you, Father, that he has come for this purpose. We thank you, Father, that he has shed his blood, sacrificed his body on the cross, that that we would receive his life. Oh, God, we pray, by your Spirit to minister this at the table today, we cry out for more of this life, more abundant life. Oh, God, a fruitful garden of life and love in our church body and in our homes. Please, God, bring this at this table today. Administer the life of Jesus to us. Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.